eight years since the financial crisis that kicked off the Great Recession, but its consequences are still being felt throughout the United States. Nowhere is this more apparent than in the sector you might call ground zero of the recession, housing. Homeownership rates are falling, rents are quickly rising, and the gap in wealth accumulation between owners and renters continues to widen. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. You can also find us every week in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter at PolicyCast. Now much of what we know about housing in the U.S. comes courtesy of the annual State of the Nation's Housing Report produced by the Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies. And today we're joined by Christopher Herbert, Managing Director of the Joint Center, who's here to fill us in on the 2015 edition of the report. Dr. Herbert, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matt. So why is housing so important to track? Well, you know, housing is central to both every uh, person's life and also is an important part of the economy. Where you live determines uh, both in terms of uh, how much it costs, how much you have left over to spend on everything else you need in your life. Uh, where you live determines your access to public services, your access to employment, um, access to other aspects of a community. So it's really central to everyone's life. And if you uh, think about housing as part of the economy, uh, the, the construction of homes, the, the furnishings that go into them, the services that are related to housing make up a pretty big piece of GDP. And so over the last few years, one of the reasons why the economy has struggled so much to regain its footing has been because housing really hasn't been playing the role it normally does in helping to drive the economy. So I guess the uh, the top line results for the 2015 edition was that home ownership rates have fallen. Is that something that's uh, a blip on the radar, so to speak, or is that something that's kind of a foreboding signal? Um, it's more than a blip on the radar. We uh, we had a tremendous increase in home ownership from the early 1990s up until the middle of the last decade. So we went from about uh, 64% of, of Americans owning their home to to uh, 69%. And that five percentage point increase was really a pretty substantial rise in a number that had been fairly stable for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've now given all that back and more. In fact, the Census Bureau released the latest data that shows that the national home ownership rate now is down to 63.4%, which is the lowest it's been since uh, the late 1960s. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, this is a pretty fundamental shift and one that I think is a reason for concern for a number of reasons. Corresponding to that home ownership dip, there's also been a real rise in rent prices across the country. Um, is is that exactly correlated? Is that exactly connected to that uh, the fact that people aren't buying homes? Uh, well, yeah, I would say that there are, in many respects, two sides of the same coin. And so we, we've had, uh, you know, household growth has been slower than it normally is, but mm-hmm. all the household growth that's happening is happening on uh, the rental side. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, with the fall in homeownership rate, we're having other households shifting into rental housing. So mm-hmm. we've had the fastest growth in renter households we've seen at any time in the last half century. And so that is putting a lot of pressure on the rental market. Uh, we've seen a substantial supply response. Multifamily construction is now at the highest level since the late 1980s, but it's not enough to keep up with demand. So rents are rising and uh, renters are spending uh, record levels amount of income on, on their monthly housing costs. So is this all a reflection of the, uh, the recession that started in 2007, 2008, or are there other factors involved? Well, there, as you might imagine, there are a lot of factors involved. Certainly, the recession is a big part of it. Um, you know, we had a, a housing boom, and a, certainly we had a housing bubble. Housing prices were unsustainable levels. The fact that they were growing so rapidly drew a lot of people into home ownership who probably otherwise wouldn't have 
bought. They saw their friends making a lot of money. They thought that if I don't buy now, I'll never be able to afford it. Mm -hmm. So that was partly what helped push that home ownership rate up to a level that was a record level. Um, the fact that credit was uh, was all too easy to get helped facilitate that as well. So part of what we're seeing is certainly a, a, a recovery in the sense that we probably had home ownership that was too high, house prices that were too high. Mm -hmm. um, so we're seeing, and then the aftermath of the recession, then incomes have also fallen substantially. Median household incomes now are about what they were in 1995. So mm -hmm. taking inflation into account where real incomes are back to where they were uh, about 20 years ago. So um, part of what's happened is an adjustment that was, that was needed, and part of what's happening is the aftermath of the economic disloca dislocation from the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. Housing is a kind of key building block of wealth acquisition for households in the United States and has been for the last at least half century. It seems like it's it's very relevant to the talk that we hear a lot about uh, about inequality today. I would say so. You know, um, homeownership has been the primary means of wealth accumulation, particularly for low-income and minority households. Um, it's been both through the, uh, the forced savings aspects of paying your mortgage over time. Another part of the equation that's often overlooked is that motivation to buy a home leads people to uh, increase their savings, to work longer hours, to, to develop that nest egg that they put down into their down payment that really becomes uh, something that grows over time in, in their, their home equity. And so the, certainly there are ways in which treating housing purely as a financial asset is misguided, um, but the fact that it's also a place to live and the fact that it, over time, you know, treated prudently will produce wealth has been an important means of wealth creation in this country. And I do think that's one reason why the fall in home ownership rate is a concern. Uh, there's no normal home ownership rate. People say, what should the home ownership rate be? There's not necessarily an answer to that. It's partly a function of how many people would like to own, how many people have the capability of being successful homeowners. Mm -hmm. I think that number is higher than it is now. We know for a fact that mortgage credits become harder to come by. Um, and there's a lot of wariness on the side of policymakers and the side of lenders as well to try to extend home ownership opportunities. Mm -hmm. And at a time when the younger generation, millennial generation, is the most racial and ethnically diverse that we've had in our country's history, to start pulling back from opportunities to expend, expand prudent home ownership, I think does have important implications for this younger generation's ability to accrue wealth over time. What's the biggest, the bigger problem here? Is it co the cost of housing or is it access to credit? Uh, well, it depends on what market you're in, in part. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are certainly, if you live in the Bostons, the San Francisco's, New York's, you know, pick your high cost market, uh, the cost of housing is, is a significant barrier. Um, there's other parts of the country where housing is relatively uh, affordable relative to income. So if we mm -hmm. look nationally at what the mortgage payment is on the uh, median priced home, relative to rent, that ratio is now more favorable than it's been uh, going back many years. It's gotten a little worse in the last couple of years as house prices have gone up and interest rates have, have also gone up a little bit. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, relative to long-term standards, housing nationally is very affordable. Mm -hmm. So that, that lack of credit, uh, we do know that uh, that lenders, again, have become much more wary about lending. They've been facing a lot of, of uh, what we call uh, putbacks, where insurers and guarantors are saying, this loan went bad. You know, you have to buy it back from us. Those costs are high for lenders. The cost of servicing loans that go into default, all those things have raised the cost of lending to make them wary of loans that might go into default. Mm -hmm. So that access to credit is clearly an issue. But I would add a third thing that's often overlooked is the fact that we, you know, I mentioned earlier that median household incomes are back in real terms to where they were in 1995. 
up to now, we haven't really had um, employment growth reach the point where we've seen pressure on wages. We've also, uh, up to the last year or so, have seen you know very high levels of unemployment. So we're now at the point where unemployment is depending upon how you measure unemployment, getting close to full employment. We're starting to see some more pressure on wages. I think, well, with that, we should see household incomes start to rebound. Mm-hmm. And that's been another important, important missing ingredient as well. The older part of the millennial generation are reaching that age where they might be buying homes historically. Right. But there are a lot of things different here. Obviously, this generation was extraordinarily hard hit by the recession uh, in terms of you know building a career from the very beginning. They probably uh, aren't coupling up as, as early as they once did. They, I should, I should say we. Uh, <laughs> a lot of us are saddled with really high student loans. That seems like something that's not exactly a uh, easily addressed kind of cyclical. Right. That seems more structural. If uh, No, I think there are. So there are uh, certain demographic trends that would suggest that home ownership will occur later. And mm-hmm. so you mentioned, you know, partnering, coupling up. People are getting, they're taking longer to, to get married or to find a partner, they're taking longer to have children. And those things are associated with a point in life when you're going to be more interested and more suited to settling down for and living in one place for a longer period of time, which mm-hmm. is what makes sense to, if you're going to buy a home. So I think the fact that, uh, and that's a trend that's been actually going on over the course of decades. The, the, the age of first marriage has been falling the point at which people are having kids has been pushed back. So that's part of a secular trend. Um, Part of that was exacerbated by the recession. We saw marriage and fertility rates fall in the wake of the recession as people's economic prospects dim. So their their willingness and interest in in kind of making those commitments also uh, goes down. So I do think that as millennials go into their 30s, they will marry, they will have kids. We're not going to see the end of the human race. And so with that, I think we'll see that interest, all the survey research I've read suggests the interest ultimately and owning a home is there. Mm-hmm. Now, the other things you point out, uh, you know, part of it is the, the, the fall off in employment and incomes from the recession. Again, I think we'll see that they're already having the uh, unemployment rates for young people are getting back to more normal levels along with the, the broader workforce. Um, Student debt is another question. You know, that is certainly has risen. The share of young people who are carrying student debt is about half, twice of what it was uh, 12 years ago. It's gone from about 20% to 40%. The average amount of debt they're carrying is also doubled from about 15000 to 30000 I think for most people, that debt will be manageable. But there's a slice of, the, of people who are carrying $50,000 and more in debt. And that makes it really difficult to, to save, and it makes it difficult to qualify for a mortgage. And so mm-hmm. I think for a number of millennials, that issue of, of the rise in student debt is going to be significant. And the other piece of it that's often overlooked is that there are a lot of people who are struggling to make those student loan payments. They're going to delinquency and default on their student loans. Student debt is not dischargeable. And both the kind of the long-term damage to their credit rating and the like will also be another hindrance for that group in trying to qualify for a mortgage. Do you think that we're going to see a gap of some kind in terms of, you know, when the housing kind of will pick up a little bit? Well, we've already seen that gap. I mean, I think the announcement that homeownership is continuing to fall pretty rapidly uh, shows that we have not yet uh, come close to finding a bottom in the homeownership rate. Part of it, though, is actually uh, uh, good news in the sense that one of the things that's driving down the homeownership rate is we're seeing household formation pick up. You know, we've a lot of talk about the fact that millennials have been taking a longer time to move out of their parents' basement. And that was certainly mm-hmm. another offshoot of the recession was absent a job, facing high rents. Many young people were choosing to stay home mm-hmm. longer, and that was slowing down household formation, again, a drag on housing demand. 
as the economy is now again approaching full employment, uh, where indications are that household formation has picked up. Most of that household growth, though, is occurring as people move out. The first step is to rent. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing a big increase in renter households, and part of that is what's pulling down the home ownership rate. And what about the those in the lower income bracket? Uh, many of them are renters. Uh, they're getting hit hard by the fact that rental rates are going sky high. Um, many of them are being pushed out of city centers, which used to be affordable. It seems like th the fact that they can't afford to buy a house and, and they're getting squeezed on both ends. Is there any kind of hope for that group? Well, uh, is there any hope? I hope there's hope. Um, I think, you know, certainly there's there's two pieces to the puzzle. There's uh, what's going to happen in the economy. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I think we're going to see, um, at this point, we're starting to see some pressure on wages, some income growth. And that's certainly an important piece of the puzzle. On the policy side, you know, when we're talking about low-income households, uh, particularly at the lowest end of the income distribution, we, in our reports, uh, use increments of $15,000 in looking at bands of households. And so the reason we do that is in, because- In terms of income? In or, terms of yeah. income. So we look at households making less than 15 or between 15 and $30,000. We do that because working year-round at the federal minimum wage, you earn about $15,000. So if you're at that kind of one worker full-time uh, minimum wage job, what can you afford? And so at $15,000 a year, if we use the standard in, in the housing world of saying, well, about 30% of your income should go towards housing to leave you enough for everything else, that means you can afford an apartment for about $400. And that's uh, you know, basically a bridge too far for, mm -hmm. for developers to try to build housing or, or maintain housing at that level. So when we look across the country, people making $15,000 or less, 80% of renters are paying more than 30% of their income for housing, and about two-thirds are paying more than half their income for housing. So at that lowest income tier, I think there's really uh, no remedy other than greater public supports for uh, housing subsidies to help them close that bridge, that gap between what they can afford and what the market can pay. That seems pretty unsustainable. 80% are paying more than they can afford for rent. That's lower income groups. Okay. So we look at all renters, mm -hmm. um, about half are spending more than 30% of their income on housing, and more than a quarter are spending more than half their income. So it's uh, one of the things we're seeing, particularly in high-cost markets, it used to be that this rental burden issue was primarily concentrated at the low end. Mm -hmm. But if you live now in those places like New York or Boston or San Francisco, and you're making between, say, thirty and 75000 dollars a year in income. We're finding more and more of those uh, households are facing these uh, rent burdens, uh, which is uh, both making it difficult for them to afford what else they need now and difficult to save, to save for, for buying a home if that's what they want to do or to save for retirement or graduate school or the like. So mm -hmm. the, the issue of rent burdens is one that's endemic across this, uh, the country for lower income households and increasingly a problem in high cost markets for, for the middle class as well. It seems like making credit available to those who aren't able to uh, afford it was the key to the crash before. Right. No, I, I mean, I think that no one wants to promote home ownership for people who can't sustain it. The, mm -hmm. the, the damage both to individuals and to communities of having to go through a foreclosure are substantial. And so mm -hmm. I think certainly you want to make sure that people are in sustainable, uh, financially sustainable positions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, question of what, what income level can you afford home ownership 
and largely it's going to depend on what market you're in, and it's going to depend upon the availability of subsidies. Um, I think one of the, the, um, the approaches that we haven't used enough are shared equity approaches to home ownership. If you're in a market like San Francisco or Boston, again, mm -hmm. where the gap between what a lower moderate income person can afford and what it costs to provide that housing is so substantial, it, you don't want to provide a grant, say, for $100,000 to a household to become a homeowner and basically give that money away. Mm -hmm. But if you put it in terms of a public ownership of that stake in the house, sell the house so that you, the, the public entity shares that part of the equity with the homeowner, you can make housing affordable, you preserve it in affordability over the longer period of time, but still allow that household to have the security of tenure and the opportunity to have income gain or wealth gains on the portion of the house they own. And so I think these shared equity approaches are they're used in uh, community land trust models and, and deed restrictions and the like. Um, some of it's been done, but it can be brought to scale and I think open up home ownership to a broader uh, income range. So this is something that's been actually piloted and Oh, it's been work. done, yeah. It's been done, uh, you know, uh, a lot of times be the public will own the land and then the, the so there's a, there's a community land trust that owns that portion of the land mm -hmm. and then the, the houses are put up and, and again, there's kind of a, an equity sharing arrangement that's made. Mm -hmm. So it's been done. It's it's. It's not really been done at a large scale yet, but I think it's one that holds a lot of promise for, 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 for a form of home ownership that we haven't promoted enough. Christopher Herbert, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matt. You can find out more by checking out the 2015 State of the Nation's Housing Report at the Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies website. We'll have a link in the show notes. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Nicole Hernandez at the Boston Globe. And, of course, to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter at PolicyCast.